Well, it is certainly um, a different experience stepping up here for more than the scripture reading. Um, and it is which month, with, with much fear and trembling, uh, that I stand before you to preach today, especially knowing the weight, uh, the gravity of such a task. I am certainly thankful that the Lord has uh, provided this opportunity, especially given uh, kind of, you know, where he's brought me from. I was a uh, professor of the faith for, I don't know, 20, 22 years. And um, he allowed me to, um, to truly recognize that I had never trusted in him, um, that I had only professed. Um, and he has been very gracious to both myself and my family. Um, I'd also like to thank, you know, Pastor Emilio and Pastor Lynn for the opportunity uh, as well. Let's go ahead and pray uh, before we get started. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you, a very needy people. A people, Lord, who have nothing in ourselves to trust in. A people, Lord, who need to hear from you and not even the preacher, Lord. Father, would you be with us this morning? Would you speak through me by your Spirit those things that are needful for the building up of the body, for the encouragement of the saints, for the conviction that may be needed, for the examination that is most certainly needed? Father, would you be glorified today, and would all glory be to Christ? In your name, amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 12. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12, and the Word of God says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. You may be seated. We have before us this afternoon a passage of Scripture that should, at this point, be very familiar to us. As many of you know, we have recently ended an eight-week Sunday school series on this very passage and in that series, we examined each of these beatitudes and considered their meaning and their practical nature. However, the purpose of this sermon 
is to take a step back from those in-depth details, if you will, and to look at the Beatitudes in summary, to look at the Beatitudes as a whole. I suppose you could say we are looking at the Beatitudes from 30,000 feet up, as it were, and considering both the context and the overall picture of what Christ was preaching. And what I think we ultimately see here in this passage, commonly referred to as the Beatitudes, uh, the start of the Sermon on the Mount, is the nature of the kingdom, the nature of the king, and the nature of kingdom inhabitants. However, before we get to that, we must consider how did we get to this point of Scripture where Christ has just started his ministry? And therefore, I think it's important to do a brief walk through a biblical theology on the king and the kingdom. Why? Well, this wasn't just some random, ordinary person that just claimed to have a kingdom and there was an arrival of a kingdom and he just shows up on the scene. Uh, but rather, the very setting before us is what the whole of Scripture points to, namely the arrival of the king and his kingdom. Now, this language of the arrival of the king and his kingdom doesn't mean to imply that he hasn't always been king or that his kingdom hasn't always been established. We certainly understand that God has always ruled and he has always reigned. We understand that he has always been sovereign over all. That he has always been king, and his kingdom, in fact, has always been established. It is all throughout Scripture. There is an acknowledgement and a testifying to the kingship and sovereign reign of God over all. For example, 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 15 says, Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone. Of all kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. He truly is King of kings and Lord of lords. Psalm 103, 11 and 12, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. Or Psalm 145, 11 and 13, They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of your majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Think of Isaiah 6, in that great chapter where we see the pre-incarnate Christ seated on his throne in the train of his robe filling the temple. And so, yes, God has always been king, and his kingdom has always been established. However, what we also see conveyed in the Old Testament is the idea of a future kingdom. And so in a very real sense, though it has always been established, and though God has always been king, there is also a need for the kingdom to be established. And there is a need for him to become king. The eternal kingdom and king would need to break into time. And it is this very event to which all the Old Testament types and shadows and prophecies point. Scripture progressively moves towards this eschatological event in which the last days would be ushered in with the coming of the king and his kingdom. And so it is in the, establ excuse me, 
<clears throat> we see this future kingdom typified in the covenant established with Abraham and the giving of the land to his descendants for an everlasting possession. And we see it typified in the theocratic rule of God under the old covenant. And though the people ended up rejecting God as their king and wanting a king like all the other nations around them, God did not forget his covenant. He remained faithful to his covenant, though they were unfaithful his kingdom would still be established. And so it is in the establishment of the covenant with David that we begin to see more clearly the future kingdom take shape. It is in this covenant that we learn of a descendant to arise from the line of David, a son whose kingdom will be established. And it won't be established like the kingdoms of this world. The kingdoms of this world that will fade away, no, but it will be established forever. As Scripture continues to progressively unfold, we continue to gain more and more insight into this future kingdom and the king. Think of the book of Isaiah and all the prophecies related to both the kingdom and the king. One such example, one such place in Isaiah is chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. It is in these verses that we get greater insight into the one to come and the kingdom to be established. We read there, For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. Notice the language of sonship that stems from the Davidic covenant. And we read, The government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And so we certainly see there is a son to come and there is a kingdom that will be established and it will be established forever. In addition to this language of sonship, we see the language of establishment here. And so what do we see here other than the eternal establishment of his kingdom in which he will reign forever? But there are two more passages from the Old Testament that we need to look at in regards to the establishment of the kingdom and the king. And it may seem as though this point is being hammered away at that many of us know these verses already. But I cannot stress enough how important this is, how essential this is, to our understanding of Scripture, as well as to our understanding of what Christ himself preached. All Scripture is built around the King. All Scripture points to Christ and his kingdom. And so let's turn in our Bibles to Daniel. Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. And specifically verse 44. Now, in this verse, notice the language. Again, we see an establishment of a future kingdom. Here we read, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. 
It will crush and put to an end all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. So while in one sense God has always reigned and his kingdom has always been established, there is still yet a kingdom to be set up. But set up by who? Well, for that, let's turn to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 and verses 13 and 14. It is in these verses that we gain greater insight as to the one who will reign and his kingdom. Here we read, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And so we see through these passages, and this was just just a handful of passages, we see that on one hand, God has always reigned. His kingdom has always been established. And on the other hand, there is a king to be enthroned and a kingdom to be established. Therefore, we must understand that it is this kingdom, this kingdom that is to be established, it is bound up in the person and purpose of Jesus Christ. It is specifically tied to him. So much so that when Christ appeared, the kingdom appeared. So much so that the primary theme, the central theme, as others have called it, of his preaching was the kingdom of God. As for the focus of his message, consider what we read in the following passages. Matthew 4.17, at the start of his ministry. We read, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4.23, just a few verses later, we read of Jesus going throughout all of Galilee. And what was he doing? He was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. In Matthew 6, in teaching on kingdom ethics, in this very Sermon on the Mount, Christ speaks of the righteousness to be exceeded if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 9.35 is almost verbatim of what we read in 4.23, that he was going about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And then, of course... You have Matthew 13, in which Christ delivers a series of parables that often start off with the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. So most assuredly, we must understand that the kingdom was the primary focus of Christ's teaching and preaching. It is this kingdom focus that must drive our understanding of the passage before us this morning. He has brought forth the kingdom. It has begun to be established, and on that note, in this passage, he begins to lay out the dynamics of the kingdom. It is in this Sermon on the Mount that he lays out, as it were, the ethics of the kingdom. And he starts off with describing the kingdom, the king, and its kingdom inhabitants. And so that is how we will break down and examine this passage. We will look at the nature of the kingdom, the nature of the king, and the nature 
of kingdom inhabitants. And so based on these Beatitudes, this passage, how are we to understand the nature of the kingdom of God? Well, first, we are immediately confronted with the fact that it is a spiritual kingdom. Each one of these Beatitudes, these characteristics of the kingdom are spiritual in nature. It is not like the kingdom or kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of God from the outset is diametrically opposed to the kingdoms of this worldly realm. Yes, it is certainly a kingdom that has broken into this world, but it is certainly not a kingdom of this world. Most, if not all of us, are familiar with Christ's words. In John chapter 18, he says in answering Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. You see, the nature of this kingdom is not established on or ruled by the ethics of this world, of this kingdom. I mean, what kingdom of this world do you see establishing themselves on the basis of recognizing their need? On the basis of conducting themselves with meekness, of upholding righteousness, of being merciful? There are no kingdoms in this realm that establish themselves on those characteristics. Rather, what we tend to see is that the kingdoms of this world are built on pride. The kingdoms of this world are built on self-righteousness. The kingdoms of this world are built on self-trust. The kingdoms of this world and their inhabitants fight for their rights. They fight for their glory. They fight in order to keep their life. It is all about self and the worldly kingdom. However, the nature of the kingdom of God is completely opposite. There is nothing like the nature, it is nothing like the nature of the kingdom of this world. It is a kingdom in which the king gives his life for the citizens. And the citizens, instead of trying to keep their life, give up their life for the sake of the king. And rather than being a kingdom established on worldly characteristics and principles, it is a kingdom established on spiritual characteristics. And the fact that the kingdom of God is spiritual tells us something of how the kingdom must be entered into. See, it is not like the natural kingdoms of this world that you are born into and that due to that birth you have certain rights and privileges. No, merely being born in the flesh does not give you entrance into the kingdom of God. Merely being born into a Christian family does not give you entrance into the kingdom of God. Reading your Bible every day does not give you entrance into the kingdom of God. As we read in John chapter 1, those whom he gave the right to become children of God and thereby participants in the kingdom of God are not those who have been born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. No, those who become children of God and thereby partakers of the kingdom of God must be born of God. They must be born again of the Spirit of God. Entrance into this kingdom means we must be adopted. We must receive the spirit of adoption. You see, there is a transfer that must take place. 
We must be transferred from the kingdom of this world, this kingdom of darkness, and we must be transferred into the kingdom of light. But that is not all that we learn about the nature of the kingdom of God. What we also see is that the nature of the kingdom of God is one of righteousness. In fact, if one were to use the word, one word to summarize these beatitudes, that word could be righteousness. John MacArthur, in referring to the Beatitudes, states the following. He says, The central theme of the Beatitudes is righteousness. The first two have to do with recognizing our own unrighteousness. And the next five have to do with seeking and reflecting righteousness. And the last Beatitude has to do with suffering for the sake of righteousness. End quote. Make no mistake... It is a righteous kingdom through and through. You see, what we have before us in this passage are pillars of righteousness upon which the kingdom of God is built, upon which the kingdom of God is established. Its very foundation is righteousness. It is where righteousness dwells, and only righteousness. And so this tells us something more about entrance or about the entrance into an inheritance of this kingdom. You see, the nature of this kingdom is such that no unrighteousness can dwell there and no unclean thing can enter. In Revelation chapter 1, we read of this kingdom, this new Jerusalem. And John, in that chapter in speaking of the kingdom and listing off glorious description after glorious description of the kingdom, says in verse 21, And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. See, the nature of the kingdom of God is exclusive. It is not like the kingdoms of this world whose battle cry is coexist. Scripture leaves us no doubt. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what we see throughout Scripture, is it not? 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10 through 10 is very clear on this. There we read, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And in case there are some who would somehow, in some way, try to justify themselves by not identifying with those categories that were laid out in 1 Corinthians 6, we have another list, a more detailed list, if you will, provided by Paul, a list in which he lays out a whole litany of fleshly deeds, such that if these deeds are practiced, that is, if these deeds are the type of deeds that characterize you in your very being, then there will be no inheritance of heaven. Look at what we read in Galatians 5, 19-21. We read, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. 
which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you. Do you see the seriousness? There's been a forewarning. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not deceive yourself as though you can practice the deeds of this world, the deeds of the flesh, and somehow still gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Scripture is very clear. There's no gray area here. Righteousness is required in order to enter the kingdom of God. But there's just one problem. There's just one problem. Scripture also tells us that there's none righteous, not even one. So what are we to do? Thankfully, that while this passage tells us that the nature of the kingdom is righteousness, this same passage tells us that in order to be righteous, what must we first do? We must first recognize our unrighteousness. Brothers and sisters, if we would recognize right, our unrighteousness, if we have recognized our unrighteousness, right, and we have looked to the righteousness of another, we can enter into this kingdom. He makes us righteous. What this passage ultimately shows us is that it is not our righteousness that grants entrance into the kingdom of God, but the righteousness of another, the righteousness of the king, the righteousness of Christ. That is our basis of righteousness. And the final aspect, at least that we'll consider this afternoon, about the nature of the kingdom, is that the kingdom of God is not merely a future reality with future benefits and a future consummation. It most certainly is that. And there is great enjoyment of this kingdom to come in fullest measure. I think that most, if not all of us here, recognize that. But what we must also recognize is that it is a very present reality. Look at the blessing of the first and last Beatitudes. In verse 5 we read, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in verse 10, the same blessing we read again, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice the present tense of the verb. The kingdom of God is a very present reality. Those who have seen their unrighteousness and have looked to the righteousness of Christ have been granted access to the kingdom of God now. While we live in the world, we live in the kingdom of this world, we are not of this world. We are citizens, not only in, but citizens of the kingdom of God. We belong to His kingdom. And this is what is conveyed in Colossians 1.13 where Paul speaks of Christ having rescued us from the domain of darkness. And notice that he did not, he did not rescue, rescue us or change us to stay in that domain, but he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. You see, even now we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in him. 
There is a present blessedness we experience as a result of being in the kingdom of God. And Paul conveys this beautifully in Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, when he says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And here is the result. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And the structure of verse 6 is key. Notice we were raised up with him and seated with him, and this all took place in him. That is, as a result of our union with him. And so what is this conveying to us? Well, as one commentator put it, this indicates that what God did for Christ, he did at the same time for believers. At the same time for believers. This is what he's done for us. Brothers and sisters, are we living in light of the kingdom? Are we walking in newness of life? Are we walking with eyes fixed on things above, eyes fixed on the eternal, not the temporal? Are we walking in light of what he has transferred us into? I know that it can be a challenge to do so with all the trials and tribulations of this world, the cares and concerns of this world, of daily life, of temptations that continually press in around us, all of the distractions that arise. But make no mistake, though not in the fullest sense, we are nonetheless in the kingdom of God, even now. These beatitudes reflect the nature of the kingdom because these beatitudes are ultimately a reflection of the nature of the king. They reflect the nature of Christ. And I am sure there are few, if any, here who would question that these very characteristics are descriptive of the nature of Christ. Each one of these characteristics you see worked out in how Jesus dealt with people in his very coming to earth. He exemplifies each and every one of these. However, I believe that the Beatitudes speak of more than just the nature of Christ. I believe that if we look closely enough, what we see is not just the nature of Christ in these Beatitudes, but the very work of Christ. We see His mission. Now, it is not that we see this work laid out chronologically, that is, beginning to end sequentially, right? But rather, it is presented in the totality of these Beatitudes. In a very real sense, these Beatitudes are the culmination of His work, of what He came to do. Consider the Beatitudes, poor in spirit, mourning, and meekness, and compare this to what we see spoken regarding regarding Christ's nature and work in Scripture. In Isaiah 61 and verses 1 through 3, we see the very mission of Christ. Notice the language as we read this verse. The language of the afflicted or the poor, the brokenhearted, those who mourn. And notice what Christ's work entailed. We read, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, 
because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. And so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. His work, as we see, was to bring good news to the poor. It was to bind up the brokenhearted. It was to comfort those who mourn. And it is this very passage that is quoted in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 19. And after he had read this passage in the synagogue, he says this, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It is in the coming of Christ that this prophecy was fulfilled. He had come to do the work given to him. But that is not all that we read of the nature of the work of Christ. You see, he was the suffering servant. He was the mourner of all mourners. As we read in Isaiah 53, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows. He was stricken, smitten, and afflicted of God. You see, this was the work that was given to him to do. And it is to this work that he willingly submitted himself. And he meekly submitted himself to his Father's will. Throughout Scripture, we read of Christ continually saying, My will is to do the will of him who sent me. John 6, 38-40 speaks of this very purpose. Christ says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. One of the aspects of meekness is submission to the Father's will. And he did this not only in his coming, but also in his death. He submitted himself meekly to his Father's will in the most trying of times. And he said, not my will, but your will be done. That's the glorious Savior that he is. He humbly submits himself, meekly submits himself, even to the point of death. Knowing what he was going to go face, he says, not my will, but yours be done. But this is not all. Consider the Beatitudes that relate to righteousness and purity of heart. Oftentimes what can be focused on is Christ's passive work, that is, his willingly going to the cross and offering himself as a sacrifice for sins. And, we, and the removal of our sins is most certainly needed. None of us would dispute that. However, that is not all that is needed. There is a need for righteousness. Remember, to enter the kingdom of God, righteousness is required. We need to be made pure. 
We need to be made righteous. And this is exactly what Christ came to do. He came to fulfill all righteousness. You see, he filled... He fulfilled the law perfectly. And the beautiful thing is that in Isaiah 53, this very chapter that presents him as the suffering servant, it is in that chapter that we read the following, that we see him as our righteous one. And he is the righteous one, verse 11 says, through whom the many will be justified. He truly is Even as Jeremiah identifies him, the Lord, our righteousness. It is because of this that we can now ascend that hill of the Lord. You see, to ascend the hill of the Lord, one needed to have clean hands and a pure heart. And this great psalm of ascent, Psalm 24, is speaking primarily, centrally, of Christ. He truly is the one who was pure in heart. He is the one in which no guile, no sin was found. He is the one who is able to ascend the hill of the Lord. We couldn't. We don't have clean hands and we didn't have a pure heart. He ascended. And it is because of Christ that we can now ascend the hill of the Lord. Because He ascended, we now ascend in Him. Brothers and sisters, those gates spoken of, those ancient doors spoken of in that psalm opened only for one man, the King of glory. Those doors, those gates were opening for no one else but the King of glory. And who is this King of glory, as the psalm says? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And because of his work, they are now opened unto us. Do we understand the beauty of that? That because of his work, those gates, the gates of heaven, the doors of heaven are now opened unto us. However, this is not all that there is to the nature and work of Christ. But consider two other beatitudes. That of being merciful and that of being a peacemaker. Interestingly enough, the Greek word used here for merciful is used in only one other place in all of the New Testament. Hebrews 2.17, the very verse that speaks of him as our merciful and faithful high priest. There the author states, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Yes, Christ had to be made like his brethren, for this qualified him to stand in our place as our merciful and faithful high priest, and to offer himself as a propitiation for our sins. And it is through this very work as our faithful and high priest that the wrath of God has been extinguished. It is gone. There is nothing left to be poured out upon us. He has extinguished it all. It is through His work as our merciful and faithful high priest that He is our peacemaker. You see, it is through Him that we now have peace with God, as Romans 5.1 says. 
We have been justified by faith, and we now have peace with God. We have been reconciled unto God once and for all. And what an amazing transaction of double imputation is found in that through Christ as our high priest, our sin was imputed to Him, and His righteousness was imputed to us. His righteousness was put to our account. Think of this, that in His work as our merciful and faithful high priest, He willingly underwent the wrath of God. He wasn't forced. He went willingly to the cross, willingly to endure the wrath of God. The wrath that we rightfully deserved, He subjected Himself to in order that we would be brought near to God. Is that not glorious? And there's one final beatitude to consider in regards to the nature of Christ and the nature of His work. It is that of suffering for righteousness' sake. Christ's life was the very epitome of suffering for righteousness' sake. He was the most righteous man the world had ever seen and ever will see. And it is because of His righteousness that He suffered. The world hated Him. They persecuted Him. And the world crucified Him. And while the world did with them as they pleased, none of it was outside the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, right? That's what we read in Acts 2. But rather this suffering... This persecution, the crucifixion, was the very means that God used to reconcile the world to Himself. They sought to do away with this righteous man. And it was the very means that God used to reconcile people to Himself. Christ willingly suffered that greatest persecution, that of death on a cross, that of death on a cross for righteousness' sake, in order that we would be made righteous. And so you see, when we read these Beatitudes, if you're looking from a 30,000 foot view, a summary view, we should certainly see the nature of the kingdom. But even more so, we should see the nature of Christ. We should see the nature of Christ. He truly is the blessed man. So far we have looked at this passage and how it reflects the nature of the kingdom and the nature and work of Christ. And since this passage speaks of the kingdom and the king, it would make sense that it would have reference to kingdom inhabitants as well. And so this brings us to the final point, the nature of the kingdom inhabitants. You see, throughout Scripture, we are giving various lists whereby we may examine ourselves. In a sense, we may, as it were, diagnose our faith. Where do we stand with God? That is a question we should be continually asking ourselves. We should continually ask ourselves, where do we stand? Are we in Christ? Does my life reflect that I am in Christ? And some such lists are the deeds of the flesh, as 
compared to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, right? That's a list by where we can... What do we see? Do we see the flesh in us still? Or do we see the fruit of the Spirit being worked within us, lived out by us day to day? Or 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-7, through 7, right? That list of various virtues that Peter provides, virtues that if they are ours and they are increasing... They render us neither useless nor unfruitful. Or even the whole of 1 John, which was written in order that they may know that they have eternal life. And that is the key. Do we know? Are we certain as much as is possible in this life that we have eternal life? Do we think about that? Do we ponder it? And so it is too with this passage. This is another list of characteristics by which we can examine ourselves. You see, the need for examination is ever-present. I'm not saying we should never trust in Christ. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying, or we should always doubt. But we should always be examining, looking. Are we being conformed to Christ's image? No matter how long one has been in the faith, we must examine ourselves, test ourselves, as even Paul commands the Corinthians do in 2 Corinthians 13.5, where he tells them to examine themselves, to test themselves. For what purpose? To see if they are in the faith. Well, he's writing to Christians, right? And yes, he is, and he's telling them, examine yourself, test yourself to see, are you in the faith? I know that you profess that you're in the faith, but are you in the faith? What does your life show? That's what we must do. You see, these characteristics, they must be in us. Not just some of these characteristics, all of these characteristics, every single one of them. Every single one. These are essential to the nature of kingdom inhabitants, to the nature of Christians, and therefore, quite simply, they are non-negotiable. Non-negotiable. And this makes sense, right? I mean, if these characteristics that reflect the nature of the kingdom as well as the nature of the king, they must be in us, right? After all, we're being conformed to his image. Now we know that this is not a list of works or things to be done whereby we may obtain salvation, whereby we may gain entrance into the kingdom. No, that's not how we're to understand this list. You know, that idea that people will say, oh, as long as I do my very best and I pursue these things, I will be accepted. And there are also many who say, the Lord knows my heart, right? I'm sure we've all heard that. The Lord knows my heart. Well, you're right. He does know your heart. He knows your heart and he has testified that your heart is above all deceitful and wicked. No amount of works will ever make you right with God, no matter how hard you try. You can do nothing to earn his favor. And so this is not a list of things we do to be saved that natural man can do, that natural man tries to earn his way into a spiritual kingdom. No! 
You must be born of the Spirit. We know what Scripture says. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. So there's nothing you can do to work your way to God. doesn't matter how often you attend church, how often you read your Bible, how often you pray. None of that matters. Are you in Christ or are you outside of Christ? Are you in Christ or are you still in Adam? That's what must be examined. Rather, what we have here in this passage is a list of characteristics that are worked within us. And this makes sense, right? These are characteristics that are spiritual in nature and therefore must be worked in us by the Holy Spirit. It is not something we conjure up within ourselves. You see, it is not mere external acts that are in view here. Acts that the natural man may certainly imitate. Oh, you can try to imitate these outwardly. That does not get you into heaven. There needs to be an inward change wrought by the Holy Spirit. No, our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. It must first be internal righteousness before it is external righteousness. It must be a righteousness first and foremost imputed to us and then a righteousness lived out by us in the Holy Spirit. And therefore, as we read through this particular passage, we should be examining ourselves and asking ourselves the following questions as we go through it. Am I poor in spirit? That is, do I recognize my spiritual bankruptcy before the Lord? That I am in complete and utter need of Him? Do I recognize that if I am left to myself, I will, that if I trust in myself, in my works, I am destined to perish? Have we recognized that? Have you recognized that? This is where it starts. Seeing our utter spiritual depravity and looking to the righteousness of another. But for those of us who hopefully say, yes, I've recognized this. Notice that this isn't just a one-time recognition. But this is an ever-present action of being poor in spirit. We must not be like the Galatians who wanted to go back to the works of the law and try to be justified that way, right? Paul rebukes him for such a thought. No, no. We must ever remain poor in spirit that no matter how long we've been a Christian, no, how much, how, no matter how much we know about the Word of God, how much we've studied it, the theology we know, we must remain poor in spirit because none of those things grants us entrance into the kingdom of God. Next, we must ask ourselves, do I mourn over my sin Do I mourn over my sin? Do I hate my sin? Does my sin cause me sorrow? Does it cause true, godly sorrow? Or is it a worldly sorrow? A worldly sorrow that leads to regret? Or is it a sorrow that leads to true, genuine repentance? A turning away from sin and a seeking to walk in obedience to the Lord... Ask yourselves, has there been a definitive break with sin? A definitive break with sin in our lives where we are no longer in bondage to it, no longer enslaved to it. 
I think we understand this doesn't mean that we will never sin, right? We will, we will always sin in this life. But does it define who we are? Like examining those deeds of the flesh, right? Like are those in us? If, if sin is what still characterizes us, then there is no entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Have we seen worked within us a dispositional change whereby we are now meek? Do we see our disposition being one of walking in humility, walking in grace, walking in patience towards the Lord and with those around us? Do we we willingly forbear and suffer wrong? Or are we insistent on making sure that revenge is meted out and and, and, um, people get what they're due? Is that where our focus is? Is there a humble submission to the will of God in our life? Is there taking on that characteristic of Christ, that meekness, being of lowly spirit? Do we pursue, do we hunger and thirst after righteousness? Yes, we are ultimately made righteous by the work of Christ. We know that. However, that should then lead to a life of righteousness. It's not a, he made us righteous so we can continue in sin. It should lead to a life of righteousness. A pursuit of holiness, without which, we know Hebrews says, no one will see the Lord. So don't deceive yourself into thinking that you don't have to pursue holiness. That righteousness is an option. It's not an option. You must pursue righteousness. You must be holy as He is holy. Is there a hunger and thirst within us for these things? Or is there more of an interest in being like the world and vigorously pursuing uh, with intent the things of the world? Or how about as a result of the mercy shown to us in Christ, are we now merciful to others? We have had the greatest mercy shown to us in that our sins have been forgiven, our guilt has been removed, and the wrath we deserve has been extinguished, gone. How much more should we be willing to show mercy to others? How much more should we interact with a merciful disposition towards others? Yet how often do we act unmercifully? Are we pure in heart? Again, yes. Ultimately, Christ in Christ we are pure in heart. But in our daily lives, there should be an undivided devotion, a singular focus on the Lord. Do you see that? Do you see a, a, a love for one master, or are you trying to serve two masters? Do you have one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the world, and you're trying to walk both kingdoms? Brothers and sisters, we are pure in heart. We get to ascend that hill of the Lord because of Christ, but we must here be single, single-minded, devoted to Him, devoted to obedience to Him. If you examine yourself, is there pure purity and heart in you? 
Has our disposition changed to where rather than stirring up strife, we now seek to be peacemakers? When issues arise and they are sure to arise, do we seek to be reconciled to our brother or sister? Do we, do we seek that there be peace between one another, unity in the church? Do we endeavor to come along other brothers and sisters when needed and, if necessary, assist with their reconciliation? I know that that takes time, but do we seek to do that? Is peace our, our goal? Are we seeking to live in peace and unity with one another and with the world? Are we seeking to live in peace with the world by evangelizing them and, and telling them how they can have peace with God? And at the same time, without sacrificing holiness, seeking on the day-to-day to live in peace with all men? Or do we stir up strife? Do we stir up contention? And finally, do we find ourselves suffering persecution? You see, in this country, we don't often face physical persecution. Praise God. Although, I'm sure it's coming at some point. But we suffer persecution, maybe even as the verse even says, insults and false accusations, and we lose family members, and we lose friends, and maybe we lose jobs. But make no mistake, persecution we must suffer. That's not an option. Remember, all of these have to be in us. Are we living in a manner that would drive persecution, but not just any type of persecution, persecution for the right reasons, for righteousness' sake, for his name's sake? Are we living in a manner that people would look at us and in a sense hate us as they hated him? You see, we no longer belong to the kingdom of this world, but to the kingdom of God. And therefore, we're in spiritual warfare with the world around us. And persecution should most certainly be expected. You see, these are characteristics that are absolutely essential. As I said, they're non-negotiable. They must be in us. Now we must understand that they will not all be present in the same form, fashion, and measure at all times. Right? Some may be present and shine brighter at other times, and others at ver- other various times. However, on the whole, these eight characteristics must be definitive of who we are as a result of the work of Christ. And it is easy, at least it has been for me, to read a list of characteristics like this and to give them no thought. To read them and say, yep, that's me. Yep, check, 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 got it, no issues. To simply read through them and not ponder what is truly being said. Or to quickly say, yep, I'm good. No need to stress myself, I'm in the kingdom. I'm in Christ. But that is not consistent with what Paul even tells the Corinthians, right? He told them, examine yourself. And so this is a clarion call to examination. We must examine ourselves before the Lord. Do these characteristics define us? 
Is this our new nature as a result of Jesus Christ? Of His Spirit's work within us? And believe me, this type of examination, it can be challenging. And it can be something that we don't want to do thoroughly for various reasons. Perhaps for fear of what we might find. Maybe we will find that after all these years of church attendance, all these years of Bible reading, all these years of proclaiming Christ, perhaps we find that we've not truly trusted in Christ. I know that was my case. That after all of those years, and that is why this is maybe such a big point of emphasis for me, after all those years as a professed Christian, the Lord revealed to me that it doesn't matter how much you've studied Reformed doctrine and gone to Reformed churches and even went to a Christian university, right? That doesn't matter. And what often kept me, because see, the, the, the Spirit wasn't confirming with my spirit that I was in Christ. There was always a, I don't know. And I knew all the doctrine. I could speak to all the doctrine. But when people would talk about the work of Christ and they would light up with joy and you could tell that it was in them, it wasn't in me. There was, there was a disconnect there. I knew it had knowledge, I didn't know it experientially. Brothers and sisters, the reason I did not say anything was because of fear of what would all these people think that I've been going to church with for all of these years. What would they think of me if they knew I hadn't really been a Christian? And that went on for, I don't know, five, six, seven years, you know, however long. Brothers and sisters, what people think of us does not matter. I don't think I could stress that enough. You see, when you're standing before the judgment throne of God, what I thought of you and what others thought of you and how they viewed you will not matter. You will not be able to give a defense of, well, I, didn't, wasn't, I knew I wasn't sure, but I was fearful of how people viewed me. And he's going to say, okay, well, you should have been concerned with how do I view you? How do I see you? What is your standing before me? Because you are the one that has to give an account before me. We should be concerned, what we should be concerned with is what does Christ think of me? How does he view me? Does he see in me these characteristics? Does he see in me the character of the king? Will he find in me a nature that is fit for the kingdom of God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, oh, Lord God, would you give us a true earnest desire to examine ourselves, to see whether these things be in us. Oh, it is so easy to be deceived, to, to fear man. Uh, Lord, oh, would you take away the fear of man and give us the fear of God. Lord God, would you make us more like Christ? Would you conform us more and more to his image that we would be a light, that we'd be salt and light, even as the next verse goes on to speak of, that we'd be salt and light in this world. Oh, Father, you have given unto us the word of eternal life. 
Would we not keep it for ourselves? Would we share it with the world around us to the glory of your name? In Jesus' name, amen.